Once a year. Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. I'm delighted to be here with my co-laborer, Emery. And he's often brought to the church by his beautiful daughter, Jasmine. And I'm very grateful for that. His son, Russell, would drive him here from time to time, but he's a little afraid of getting this close to the church. So, and he's a little bit, you know, he's a little bit wussy about actually hearing doctrine face to face and, uh, you know, man to man. So love to love to you, Russell. And that's just a little bit of biting humor. I'm saying that because this next message might hurt a little, but it shouldn't. It's going to be a, I think it's going to be very pleasant. And remember, if any time a message stings, it stings the preacher first. The preacher gets the sting, and then he gets to deliver it to others. And the sting is always meant to be accompanied by a rapid healing afterwards and a greater and higher impartation of motivation than ever before. So, Father, we thank you for this time and again, I'm grateful, Father, that you've afforded me the privilege for lo these many years to communicate your word of truth. You've been very gracious to me as I've grown in grace and in the knowledge of your Son and my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You've taken this congregation through many changes. You've effected many conversions in many of us. And I pray that this message, as it goes forth, will travel into the hearts of many and that by your grace, it will have a great effect, creating momentum onto the high ground of the spiritual life and for the glory of your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. After some consideration... I've decided to exegete the next section of Hebrews, at least from 5.11 to 14, and then a little more, perhaps, using the four conversions that were brought up previously, namely the religious, the moral, the intellectual, and the psychic conversion that have been explicated with thoroughness by Bernard J.F. Lonergan, by Ben Meyer, and more recently by Robert M. Duran, who even earlier this year made his graduation into the presence of the Lord. Not much is left to do, therefore, in defining and describing these conversions. It's what I call, and it's what's called upper blade data. Upper blade data is when something is given definition. Lower blade data is when you're dealing with theology or Bible study and you give data or documentation from the scriptures. So not much is left to do in defining and describing these four conversions, although I'm going to rename one of them. That's what we call upper blade data. But there is, and I'm grateful for this, a lot to do in identifying them in the scriptures. That is, seeing and identifying these four conversions in the Bible. That's lower blade data. There are times when being or becoming like a child is desirable if you're an adult. 
to become like a child, it can be desirable. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 18.3 said, I'm telling you truly, unless you're converted, and he uses that term rarely, but when he does, it's very important. It means here, cause to turn. I won't get into the Greek exegesis of this because I have a lot to say. But he says, I'm telling you truly, unless you're converted and become like children. And the word here is ta-paidea, not a word used in Hebrews, or at least in our passage in Hebrews. Paidea, tai or ta Paidea, P-A-I-D-I-A, Paidea, ta, Paidea. This is a word for children, and it's not, he doesn't use the word that we've seen before and is in many passages in the scripture, napioi, as Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, 13, 11, and as the writer's about to use it in Hebrews 5, 14, napioi. He says, unless you become like children, you'll never even enter the kingdom from the heavens. He went on to explain that he meant becoming, quote, like this child, this child. He, has, he sees a child in the crowd that's listening to him, and he calls this child out, calls him to him or her to himself. And places him in the midst of the crowd to use as an example. Not just because the child was a child, but apparently this child was listening with rapt attention to Jesus. And possibly even believing him to be important enough to listen to. Possibly even believing he was the Messiah. So he went on to explain that he meant becoming like this child. He points to the child that he calls out to himself, calls to himself from outside of the crowd. And so he went on to explain that he meant becoming like this child in terms of humbling oneself as this child. Then he uses the singular here, to, T-O, and then P-A. I-D-I-O-N, ton, or to, paidion, then tuto, this child, to paidion, tuto, this child. So he went on again to explain, you've got to become like this child in terms of humbling oneself as this child. Such a person will be great in the kingdom of God, he said. So here's one time when becoming like a child is a good thing, a profitable thing. So such a person, Jesus said, like this child, becoming like this child, becoming humble, will be great in the kingdom of God. He was speaking of a specific child whom he had called to himself out of the crowd, Matthew 18.2. And he had him standing among them. Evidently, that particular child had been humbly attentive to Jesus, unlike others in the crowd, including other adults. Worthy of imitation is the child who humbly receives Jesus' teaching and readily believes. 
If anyone assumes they will enter the heavenly kingdom without humbling themselves, they're self-deceived. If anyone says they are functional in the kingdom of God or have all the secrets of the kingdom of God and you can buy their book because they're functional in the kingdom of God but they have no humility, they're trying to deceive you. Becoming like a child in terms of humble receptivity to the word, Psalm 34.2 or Septuagint 33.2, did I mention this is increment 137 of Hebrews? Becoming like a child in terms of humble receptivity to the word is a very desirable trait and necessary even if one is even going to enter the kingdom of God, to even enter the kingdom of God, say nothing of being habitually and efficaciously functional in it. Jesus doesn't even let you into the kingdom of God if he thinks you're going to be an ineptozoid in it or a dysfunctional person in the kingdom of God. So now you say, I thought you believed everyone is eventually going to be in the kingdom of God. I do. But I also believe that none will enter without becoming humbled. And so there's going to be a humiliation to the point where every knee will, in fact, gladly bend while every tongue gladly and praisefully acknowledges Jesus to be Lord or the Lord, Yahweh, to be Jesus. So it's kind of uh, comforting to consider that everybody who's ever lived in all of human history will one day be humble or humbled. Now, there are other times when being or becoming like children is regression into childish ways and not desirable at all. And in fact, can be spiritually dangerous. Such is the case in 1 Corinthians 3.1 where the apostle chides the Corinthian saints by writing this. And I, brothers, as for me, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people. Now that's got a sting when your whole reputation is based upon you thinking you're spiritual. So I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people. That means people oriented to things above nature through a religious or spiritual conversion. Notice I said spiritual conversion. I think spiritual conversion is better for our use rather than religious conversion, as we'll explain. And I, brothers and sisters, was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal. That means people that are only oriented to nature and sometimes oriented against nature or what is natural. So in spirituality, one doesn't go against nature, but with carnality, you can either just be only going along with nature or you can be antagonistic even to nature as the sins of our time indicate. So I'll back up and say it again in 1 Corinthians 3.1. And I, brothers and sisters, was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to very young children 
in Christ. Very young children. Guess what word that is? N-E-P-I-O-I-S. Napios. A word that, napios, plural. A word that's going to be used in, it's used in 1 Corinthians 3.1. It's used five times in 13.11 of the Corinthians. But it's also used in Hebrews coming up 5.14. Make that 13. 5.13. So I, brothers and sisters, was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to very young children, napios in Christ. The apostle is tough here. He's a little tough because he bluntly calls them out as non-spiritual infants. But he's gracious because he says they are, guess what? They are n. Christo. They are in Christ. Very gracious. In Christ. In a strange juxtaposition of these two different words, which I did as a kind of word study today, in a strange juxtaposition or setting aside each other of the word the words for children, two different words for children. The Corinthians can be seen as not having become like Paideia, like the little child that Jesus pointed out, but, but they were napios, little children who were dull of hearing. So it's a kind of paradox, but here's a paradox. Only by becoming like the little child who served as Jesus' example do we have a chance of not becoming like little children who are not capable of digesting mature doctrine and incapable of possessing advanced insights and therefore vulnerable to being tossed to and fro by every wind of demonic doctrine. Ephesians 4.14, which happens to use the word napioi. Ephesians 4.14, as children tossed to and fro by every wind of demonic doctrine. I say demonic because of 1 Timothy 4.1, and you'll notice then that Ephesians 4.14 also contains the word napioi's. Spiritual people, here's another word, might as well do it. Spiritual people is P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-I-S. Pneumatikois, spiritual people. They are spiritual people because they've undergone conversions, changes of horizon. They've undergone that which is called the religious conversion, especially. And again, I prefer to call call it the spiritual pneumatikos conversion because it has to do with the Holy Spirit pouring out into the heart the love of God. And it has to do with the believer returning that love to God. Romans 5.5, 5, 
1 Corinthians 2.9. And all of this is a part of God's gift of his love, a gift of his own love. So it's the Holy Spirit who affects this conversion. And so I'd rather call it spiritual than religious, especially given all the modern misgivings about words like religion or religious. The Holy Spirit, of course, is involved in all true conversions and oversees them, as it were, and evokes them. But in a most special sense, in the spiritual conversion where a person gives habitual primacy to the love of God in his or her life. The carnal person, however, sarkikos, as it's called, or sarkikoi in the plural, the infantile person who is nevertheless in Christ cannot be said to be effective or even functional in the kingdom of God. He or she has not undergone the intellectual conversion and therefore has not made the break from childish thinking. They still see everything as how it affects me. Everything out there is seen with a view to how it affects me. Other people are viewed that way. They are naive in the wrong kind of way because though they may be technologically skilled or academically trained or they fancy themselves as culturally superior or ideologically woke, they really have no idea of the spiritual realm and have never allowed the exposition of the word to give light, to bring light into their souls and spirits in Psalm 119, 130. They've never allowed the exposition of the word of God to give the light of insights that would cause intellectual conversion and a break from childhood thinking, which, according to the Rolling Stones, is like childhood living. It's easy to do. Childhood living, easy to do. Never mind. That's Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones. The non-spiritual person, even if in Christ, I almost forgot I was on recording there for a minute. The non-spiritual person, even if in Christ and Christo, hasn't undergone the psychic conversion, which would enable them to be perceptive. Listen carefully to this. The psychic conversion, so named by Robert Michael Duran, The psychic conversion would have enabled them to be perceptive of the meanings of symbols and metaphors which are so endemic in Scripture, pervasive in Scripture. This unconverted state where there's no psychic conversion, psychic conversion, among other things, as far as I understand it, gives you an ability to recognize and perceive the meanings of symbols and metaphors. That's essential if you're going to read the Bible or study it properly or interpret it correctly. So this unconverted state is never more evident than when such people interpret the book of Revelation. You interpret the book of Revelation without a psychic conversion, you will get some of the most bizarre and weird interpretations you've ever heard of. The carnal person, though in Christ, has not undergone the conversion whereby they begin to place eternal values over evanescent 
satisfactions. I'm going to say that again. The carnal person, though in Christ, has not undergone the conversion called the moral conversion, whereby they begin to place eternal values over evanescent personal satisfactions. This is never more evident. This lack of what is called moral conversion is never more evident in any people group more than the case of the Corinthian saints who rationalized on one hand, they rationalized sexual immorality between unmarried people or married people and unmarried people. They rationalized gluttony and they rationalized, on the other hand, abstinence in marriage. And they even misbehaved during the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist by overeating and overdrinking, coming to the service overfed and drunk and not waiting for others to partake of the feast or of the sacred meal itself. The carnal person, like these Corinthian saints, even though en Christo, has not undergone the conversion whereby they habitually assign the highest priority to the love of God in their lives. If they had, they would have at least waited for their brothers and sisters. So these are people without conversion. A carnal person doesn't have an intellectual, psychic, spiritual, or moral conversion. They're without all these. And that's why you wonder why people say they're Christians and they wonder why, how can you be in Christ and do that? Well, we just found out. You can be in Christ and be a jerk. So I'm saying all this to show that the PT wants these conversions to be effected and in place before he gets on with the most remarkable insight of the entire New Testament. The great archpriesthood of Jesus Christ and its most remarkable implications and applications to a first and to a 21st century audience. So here, let's pick up with Hebrews 5.11. Again, I think you'll see this next section in the light of the four conversions better than you would if I just did it some conventional way. And I'm not going to do it the conventional way. Hebrews 5.11, we have a lot to say about this, meaning this oath-fortified oracle from Psalm 110.4. But it's hard to articulate in such a way as to make it intelligible to you since you've become nothroi in listening, sluggish, dull. And if we were to be a little politically incorrect, it almost means stupid. In a stupor, that means. The English translation of the Greek text of Proverbs 27, 23. Let's consider that. My mind keeps going there. When I look at this section, Proverbs 27, 23 says, you will know well the souls of your flock. Now, this was written in a section of Proverbs, beginning with 25, 1, going through, I think, 29 or even 30. This was written in a section of the Proverbs called, quote, the miscellaneous instructions of Solomon. It may have been some of the notes that Solomon took as a young man when he was being taught by his father David or by other wise mentors and tutors. But it also appears to be 
written to people in leadership, whether a king or a civil leader, or to us today, it would be a pastor also. So these scriptures are all part of an educational system devised by Solomon, who was gifted with wisdom. You will know well the souls of your flock was evidently written to people in leadership, and it applies to, obviously, shepherds who are called pastor or shepherd teachers, poimen didaskaloi in Ephesians 4.11. They are a spiritual group of men, and they have a spiritual gift and are given to the church of the firstborn, as it's called in Hebrews 12.22, until we all come to the unity of the faith and to the stature of maturity or completion that is exemplified in the man, Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4.11, 4.13, connected with 1 Timothy 2.5. The PT who wrote Hebrews certainly knew the souls of the flock to whom he was writing, to whom he addressed these words, the words that say, since you've become sluggish in listening. He knew the souls of his flock and that they had become lethargic they had, in the way we used to say it is they had no longer made doctrine, Bible doctrine, the number one priority of their lives and schedules. You've become sluggish in attentiveness, in terms of attentiveness or listening. So he preached and wrote this homily, and it was dispatched to them, sent to them and received by them just in time, I think, because they were on the verge of making a fateful decision that could result in disaster. Now, contrary to what a fairly large consensus, and here again I'm anticipating or dealing a little bit ahead with a passage to come up in Hebrews 6 later on, and so we're making a foray into it, which is kind of the habit of, that I do in my teaching, and sometimes consciously or unconsciously reach ahead take a four-way until I get bloodied into a certain war in the head of the scriptures, ahead in the scriptures. So contrary to what a fairly large consensus of exegetes infer, and there's a lot of them, that they were in danger of suffering eternal loss and of entering into eternal perdition, which we call hell, the PT instead does not go with that consensus. He instead, he himself, assures them, especially in Hebrews 6, 9, that the very nature and character of the salvation that God wrought in Christ is not such that they could be eternally lost or that anyone could be for that matter. But given not only the security of eternal salvation and the universality of it, the souls of the flock to whom this PT was speaking were definitely in danger of losing their experience of the preservation of the soul, also found in Luke 21, 19, as well as Hebrews 10, 38 and 39. They were in danger of losing their experience of the preservation of their souls and indeed the saving of their lives, and the actual saving of their lives from imminent historical disaster. A disaster that the PT was confident. Now listen carefully to this. A disaster 
that the PT was confident that they would evade in their case. Hebrews ten thirty eight to thirty nine and one of the end the end of the one of the most powerful exhortations in Scripture. He says, "You are not the kind of people that draw back into destruction. You're not those people. You are those who believe and persevere in fidelity and faithfulness to the preservation of your souls. That's what you are." So, despite some of the painful exhortation. Take that one with you to the bank. Now, there's also, and I've read this a lot, not only in Jewish writings, but in Hellenistic Greek writings like Plato. Plato believed in a place of eternal hopeless hell himself. So did many of the Jewish exegetes. Philo, in fact, believed that there was a kind of sin from which you could never come back could never come back from it. It couldn't be restored. It would be impossible to restore you. And even the Hebrew writer uses that language. It is impossible to restore such a one. And so misunderstanding his rhetorical purpose and intention there, people assume, and they go along with, the writings of those who aver that it is impossible to restore an apostate because the writer himself in Hebrews 6, 9 says that he's confident of the superior things that belong to salvation, even though he's talking in the way that he had to talk. The PT was, according to Hebrews 6, 9, confident, again, of the superior things that belong to salvation, to real salvation. As far as the writings of those who aver or affirm or who insist that it's impossible to restore an apostate, they have to contend with the Lord himself, who said, with God, all things are possible in Matthew 19.26. And if they're afraid to argue with Jesus, maybe they could argue with Gabriel, who said to Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. We'll be speaking of this further down the road a lot more, I hope, because it's important for your assurance and for your maturity. Now, as Jesus spoke with the apocalyptic language of cosmic or universal catastrophe, people without a psychic conversion don't realize his metaphorical way of speaking. They don't understand the parables or apocalyptic language, and that's how they come up with hell doctrine. That's how they come up with a wrong interpretation, a futuristic interpretation of a future rapture and great tribulation and coming of the Antichrist and mark of the beast and don't take the vaccine because it's the mark of the beast and all this. It's absolutely, it's actually a, I'll just be gentle and call it psychoneurosis and not psychosis. I'll be gentle. That's what happens with distorted doctrine. That's what happens without a psychic conversion. Without a psychic conversion, you read the Bible, you become psycho. So, as Jesus spoke with the apocalyptic language of cosmic or universal catastrophe, which was used in the Jewish apocalypticists in his time and before his time, 
in his destruction, his prediction rather, of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, he used cosmic or universal cataclysmic language. So this writer, in similar ways, speaks in terms of losing salvation and of the threat of eternal perdition, as others before him did, like Philo, P-H-I-L-O, and others. And this is one reason why I don't think Philo should be considered a primary influencer of the PT, even though the PT uses terms that you can find all over the place in Philo. It's amazing how much there's a, a similar vocabulary used by Philo and the pastor teacher. But I think the influence of Philo over this pastor teacher doctrinally and theologically is far overblown and that he didn't really have that much of a influence on him even though the PT uses terms that are often highly reminiscent of Philo. Philo believed there was a sin from which you could never come back and from which no one could ever be restored. This writer does not believe that. So I'll say again, as Jesus uses the language of apocalyptic language of destruction, cosmic destruction, the PT uses the language familiar to his readers about hellfire and brimstone, as it were, going to hell to accentuate the significance of what is at stake. But more on this further on down the road. In any case, that this rhetorical device is not intended to actually threaten them with the eternal loss of salvation is indicated when he eases up on them, in Hebrews 6, 9 to 10, which sets them up for a shift to a renewed exhortation in 6, 11 through 20 especially 613 to 20. Again, I've elected and chosen after consideration to deal with the brief passage before us, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, along the lines of the four conversions. So let's look at it again, Hebrews 5, 12. Continuing after 5, 11 is 5, 12. For although because of the time that has elapsed, you should be teachers... Now, it doesn't mean every one of you should have a teacher's certificate or that you should all be pastor teachers and have a pulpit or that you should all be officially rabbis or teachers. Rabbi is a very honorable term, and it should be and is today and was then. Although because of the time that's elapsed, this writer says, you should be teachers, meaning you should be able to explain these things to people in conversation. You should be able to explain these things to people in counsel or in advice or even in friendly banter. You should be able to have a knowledge of these things so that you can explicate them to inquirers. Instead, he said, you have need again that someone teaches you the elementary sayings of God. You've come to be in need of milk, not solid food. So they were in danger of regression through dullness or lack of industriousness in hearing, doing the work that really counts in the Christian life. They were dull in hearing the teaching of the word of God. Part of that is because they think, well, I'm going to listen to a message today. I'll sneak it in while I'm multitasking or I'll... Throw it in just to say that, I, yeah, I heard that message. Or, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, always repeating something. I already know that. 
Yeah, right. You don't. You don't. If you can even say that in an indifferent tone or an arrogant tone, I already know. You don't know it. You don't know it at all. You know it less than somebody who you think is an ignoramus knows it. So, milk here stands in opposition to the solid food of the mysteries of God. Now, instead of just going into the milk and meat and the whole thing that's traditional, I'm telling you today that the solid food he's talking about here speaks specifically of the mysteries of God. How do I know that? Well, the mystery of God's intention is to sum up all things in the heavens and earth in the Messiah, in Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. That's meat. That's solid food. That's for mature believers. Young believers don't want to hear that. They will recoil and curl up like a snake and be ready to bite you if you assume, if you even suggest that God's going to restore everything and everybody. Paul spoke about this contrast and he chided the saints in Corinth because of their status as those who still thought and reasoned as children. And by that he meant you live in your own world and it's a world unmediated by meaning. The child has a world unmediated by meaning. Nothing means anything other than how it relates to me. I see a bottle, that's my bottle. I see this, it's mine. I see this, it's mine. I see this mobile, it's mine. It's, everything relates to me. It's a world unmediated by meaning. And that's how Christians are when they read the Bible. Everything is literal and has a crass literalism to it and is not given or granted the possibility that maybe there's a metaphorical or parabolic or symbolic meaning that would really bring, to, bring home to them the punch that's intended in a parable or in an apocalypse or in a passage or in a proverb. And so when he speaks of milk, he speaks of basic doctrine, it's true. But when he speaks of meat, he speaks of the mysteries. Paul spoke about this. And during a course of chiding or rebuking the saints in Corinth because of their childish status in the negative sense. Paul had said that he was able to teach wisdom in a mystery to the mature. That's teleoi. That's another category of humanity. Teleoi. He was able to, and so were his cohorts and his co-laborers, he was able to teach wisdom in a mystery to the mature. That's those who have had intellectual, moral, and spiritual conversions and who were also able to discern the meanings of symbols, metaphors, parables, etc. through the psychic conversion. So this is what he said in, Hebrew, in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 7. It's my translation, but I've also put in a translation by Francois de Troyes in his Mirror Bible to help beef up this translation. He says, and again, this is 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul. Among the mature, teleois, teleois, we communicate wisdom, 
not the so-called wisdom, Sophia, of this age, nor that of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Instead, isn't it amazing that the rulers, the, the big VIPs, the tech giants, everybody in the world that's so highly regarded and highly regards themselves and wields such power, apparently, that they're all coming to nothing. They're on the way out. They don't even know it. They don't know it. They don't maybe recognize the God who created them, the God who made them, the God who graced them out. They're on their way out. Their wisdom is on the way out. It's temporary. It's going to fade away like an old piece of cloth. And so Paul says, I'm not talking about the wisdom of this age nor that of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Instead, we impart the hidden wisdom of God. That means two things. Hidden from ages past, but also hidden from those who think they're wise in this age. But look what he says. We communicate wisdom, not the so-called wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Instead, we impart the hidden wisdom of God in a mystery. In a mystery. In the context of, in the embrasure of the mystery, in other words, of God's great intention to sum up all things in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, and to justify all of humanity and glorify all of humanity in his son, the Messiah. That's a mystery. That's solid food. Can you chew it? Can you digest it? Or are you not ready for it? You'd rather talk about the coming tribulation and the coming antichrist and the rapture of the church, which will rescue me from the terrible things to coming that to come because the rapture rescues me from the terrible tribulation to come. You want to still think that way? You want to still go that way? You want to still keep pushing toward a kind of mental breakdown and a kind of a psychosis because that's what distorted doctrine will do? Or do you want to get the insights that God is giving at this time in history about the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and his great arch priesthood over all of humanity, his representation at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens of human beings? Well, look at it. In a mystery which God has predestined before the ages for our glory. This is where the mirror Bible shines. He says, Francois de Toise translation says, a mystery unfolding God's masterful plan whereby he would redeem his glory in human life. And that, I wouldn't argue with that in a million years. That's exactly what he's talking about. God's mystery of God's unfolding of God's plan, his masterful plan, whereby he would redeem his glory in human life. I think that's remarkable. But are people ready for the USSJC, the UIIC? Are people ready for advanced insights? Or do they want to remain children, stay with the basics, and threaten their friends with hell if they don't obey, believe, or do the right thing? Hebrews 5.13, Now everyone who partakes of milk is unskilled, inexperienced, unacquainted 
with a message about righteousness because he's an infant, an infant. And so you can't gum solid food. Hebrews 5.13, once again, unskilled in the message about righteousness. We taught about that. The message about righteousness is God's saving action in Christ by which the world was reconciled to him. You're unskilled in that word of righteousness, so you're going to go around browbeating people into believing in Christ or going to hell. This napios, as he's called in Hebrews 5.13, is still living in a stage of infantile perception in what is to him a world unmediated by meaning in which everything has a connection to me. It is not that the flock has regressed to this stage yet, but that they're not advancing and therefore sluggish And because of that, they're in their own spiritual desert, no man's land. And they're faced with a decision to advance or to recede, to proceed on a progression line or regress on a retrogression line, which really means it's a matter of life and death in this historical case. Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the, hmm, teleon, teleon, T-E-L-E-I-O-N, teleon, whose senses, notice that, senses here. That's the first way of being conscious. The senses is where the psychic conversion transpires. So solid food is for the mature whose senses, senses are the first way of being conscious, where you hear, where you see, where you perceive, where you experience. So solid food is for the mature whose senses have been trained. That means who have had a psychic conversion in the first way of being conscious. So solid food is for the mature whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good, and that means in this case values, eternal values, distinguish between values and evil, and that means that which is evanescent personal satisfactions over eternal values. In other words, once you've had this conversion or these conversions, in this case, in the first century case, good would be to leave the former principles, to leave the former loyalties, to leave the former abrogated offerings and priesthood and move on. That's the good. The evil here would be to rather, even knowing this, go back into those loyalties and into the offering of the old temple sacrifices in order to have the evanescent satisfaction of not being stigmatized anymore by your peers and therefore perhaps even gaining economically from that decision. Pastor, do you believe in the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Secretly. What do you mean secretly? If I preach it, I'll be fired. Oh, okay. So are you choosing 
and I say this for myself, I've had a long time coming to some of the conclusions I came to because to come to those conclusions and to make them public would mean that I'd be booted out of a certain affiliation or another affiliation. So, yeah, I understand the conflict. I ain't no hero, and I understand. But in the long run, we are going to be faced with the decision to choose our own passing, evanescent, and transient satisfactions or eternal values. All right, so in closing, all this goes to the four conversions. If they have undergone these conversions, it will be sure. Listen carefully. If they've undergone these conversions, it will be sure that they'll not opt to return to their former loyalties and to an abrogated system and the terms of an abolished covenant for their own perceived personal and immediate benefit. They won't do it. So what about Hebrews 6.1? It says, in effect, let me paraphrase. Let's take the progression line instead. Let's go on to completion. Not laying again this foundation. Not choosing the option of having the basics all done again. And then going back to even the former loyalties under the Levitical priesthood. Let's not do that. But let's move on with the mature doctrine of the great archpriesthood of Christ. Let's choose that option instead. So really they're faced with two options here. Take the retrogression line for your own personal satisfaction. Take the progression line despite the possible loss of personal satisfaction, but with the gain of eternal value and even eternal reward. So, what about the 21st century? The same pertains today. Will we need to have the basic doctrine stressed to us again? Or are we ready to advance by advanced doctrines like the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the universal impact of the cross of Christ, and the AD 70 trajectory, which really fixes a lot of weird eschatology? Are we going to press on under the recognition of symbolic meanings on the first way of being conscious as pertains to parables and apocalyptic language such as in Revelation, the book of Revelation? Or are we going to stay with the old understanding ad nauseum and a childish dispensationalism? Application to the church at large then, and that's what I want to make clear, atlat, on the level of our time. Become like the child whom Jesus called to himself. Don't be proud. Don't assume you know everything you need to know of the biblical message. I sure don't. And I haven't even known it by a long shot come to all that is in there, obviously. Be ready to receive wisdom related to the mystery of God's intent. His great intention, as Isaiah 9.5 puts it in the Septuagint, Isaiah 9.6 in the English. Are you still going to play baby games? You still want to do that instead? You want to still play baby games? 
Not in the present case. In our case, it's not just reiterating basic doctrine, but it's really the choice of whether you're going to stay with distorted doctrines, like the rapture and the future tribulation and the coming Antichrist and vaccines are the mark of the beast and so is everything else etc etc ad nauseum ad nauseum means until it makes you sick and that's what it means to get tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine it's a nautical term that means you're on a boat or on a ship and you're being tossed to and fro till you get seasick are you going to remain loyal to a religious system that's been tried and found wanting are you going to be stubbornly listening to dead or living preachers who rehash basic doctrines or who peddle false doctrine? Are you going to stick with them because you can't shake your loyalty to a personality cult? And because you don't have the guts to be open to the Holy Spirit and to wonder and inquire before God? And because you don't have the courage to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? You just might find out, you just might find that his significance and his saving grace extends farther than what you've imagined and what dear old Dr. So-and-so has said or dear old Pastor So-and-so. You might just, or Father So-and-so, or Sister So-and-so has said, you might just find that Jesus' significance and saving grace extends a hell of a lot farther than what you've imagined, and that the scope of God's mercy and love stretches farther than your carnal, unconverted imagination is able to go. Amen.